Good morning, Grace Chapel. It's a beautiful day outside, isn't it? Yeah. There are only a few days left of summer. So for those of you who love winter, it's coming. Yeah, your, your wish is about to happen. Um, we're doing judges, as has been announced for weeks now, and the, the guides are back there for you to take with you. Um, how many, I just, I'm just curious, how many of you have actually read from chapter 1 right through the entire book? You've, you've read the entire book? Of, now, I know that many of you have heard, you've heard the story of Samson, and that's about the most familiar story in the book. <clears throat> but how many of you have actually read the whole book? So here's my, here's my challenge to you. Before you come every Sunday, you read the passages that we're going to go through because for I know for many people, they're very unfamiliar. It's not one of the books that you go to and you're reading out of all the time for a lot of encouragement. Yeah. So why would Christians… Oh, and if you want to know which chapter to read, get a guide and that'll help you. All right. Why would Christians study a book like Judges? Those of you who've read through it, you might be asking yourself that. What's he going to do when he gets to… It's a book that could easily be rated R for its content if it was produced for the modern screen. To, to not get the R rating, you would have to skip chapters. Death and slaughter, human sacrifice and betrayal, sex and scandal. That saturates the pages of this book. Ehud murders Eglon and leaves him to rot in his own bathroom. Jephthah sacrifices his only daughter as a burnt offering because he's made a vow to Yahweh. Samson spends time with a prostitute. A Levite cuts up his murdered concubine and sends her dismembered body parts throughout Israel to all the tribes, and it incites a genocide. Judges pictures the life that you and I live in this world as messy. It presents it in the light we should be looking at it. It is foul. It's complicated. It's not easy. There aren't easy answers. And it's all that because of your sin and my sin. We're also going to see this predictable cycle of sin. It's going to be in the study notes that you get, and you can see it on the screen there. And we're going to be going over this cycle again and again and again. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about this cycle. Our own sin today follows the same familiar pattern. We like to look at judges and say, how could they? But we need to point the finger and make it curl back and say, how could I? It might seem to some of you that the book of Judges lacks a content filter. It's like reading stuff on Facebook. <clears throat> but this is not true. It doesn't lack a content filter. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus gives us the answer to this, and we're taught by Jesus himself that there is a filter through which we are to read the entire Bible, including the Old Testament, which includes the book of Judges. Jesus told his disciples this, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Which scriptures is Jesus referring to? The Old Testament. New Testament hasn't been written yet. And it is they, the Old Testament scriptures, 
that bear witness about who? Me. The narratives contained in the entire Old Testament were written to bear witness and to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the great salvation that God has achieved for His people, many of us in this room, for all people of all races. And Judges is going to remind us of our incessant inclination to forget God. Do you ever forget God? To forget His promises. And all the good blessings that you and I encounter on a daily basis, and sometimes we're just blind to them. We have this new life through Jesus Christ. It's brand new. The old is gone. Our sins have been wiped clean. And Judges vividly cites account after account after account of God's faithfulness in spite of the trash we're going to read through over the next eight weeks. God's faithfulness is what shines through in spite of constant faithlessness and forgetfulness. You see, for you and I, there is hope. God sends deliverers. He sends Savior after Savior to rescue His people from the calamities of their own sin. It's not like the world's doing Israel harm, and they're just like, oh, God, help us. No, Israel's done the harm. What undeserved mercy, what unfathomable grace. Well, let's get into it. Are you ready? Because it's coming. Here we go. First, I, we need to set and place judges in the larger story of Scripture, because it's going to help us understand some of the stuff that's going to come down this pipe, and it's going to be rough. Believe me, it is. The opening line in the book of Judges is after the death of Joshua. You remember Joshua, the great general who took over after Moses and helped conquer the land of Israel that God had given to the people? He's the guy who led them, you know, with the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, all that stuff. It's identical to the opening line of the book of Joshua, which immediately precedes this, after the death of Moses. You see, there's a connection between Joshua and Judges. Judges continues the narrative that was left off in Joshua, which itself is a continuation of the narrative of the book before it, which is Deuteronomy. So you got Moses, Joshua, and then all these Judges. And there's this unity it's amazing if you read all three, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. There's this unity in the grand plan of God. And actually, that unity is capsulized in the book that comes right after Judges, which is Ruth, which is a story taken out from that time period, which ends with a brightness that Judges lacks. The outworking of history across the pages and it's God's hand on it all. And it might appear at times as we go through Judges, you actually, you could get depressed. I could, I could see this happening. Because it looks like the grand plan of God and God's redeem, redeemed people are simply falling apart. It's like everything is falling apart at the seams. But God knows what He's doing, right? In Isaiah 46.10, He says through the prophet, Isaiah, he is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. 
and I will accomplish all my purposes. It may not look like it. It may look like it's all being undone, but I'm in charge. Nothing catches God by surprise. Even Israel's fall into sin, their worship of other gods, their idolatry, and their subsequent exile that we studied when we went through the book of Daniel last year is part of God's plan. I know it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's part of, part of God's plan for the redemption of this entire planet. And so the book of Judges describes this period in the life of the nation of Israel just after the prophetic leadership of Moses, the, the military might and leading leadership of Joshua, and right before the establishment of all the kings. you got Saul, David, and all the others. It's a period that covers over 400 years. You know, that is longer than our own nation's existence. To give you kind of an idea of the kind of time we're going to be going through here. And the second thing we need to do is we need to understand these people. We really do. Because it's going to help us understand ourselves. This time period is described with four brief statements that we're going to see throughout the book. There's a Chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 19, and chapter 21. And it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This time period in Israel had a crisis of leadership. Does our world today have a crisis of leadership? Can you relate? But two, consequently... There was a crisis of Israel's faithfulness to God because of the crisis of leadership and their covenant with God. You see, they had a contract with holy God, and they broke it over and over again. And you can always blame the leadership, but that's not the real problem. It's you and it's me. And we're going to see this over and over again. The two generations before Judges chapter 1. We're going to go through Judges 1, 2 in the first six verses of, of 3 today. But the, the two generations that existed before we come to Judges chapter 1. You got that wilderness generation. Remember, they died in the wilderness following Moses. And then you had the generation that actually conquered the land. Well, part of the land, which we'll see under Joshua. They both, listen to this, they both had been eyewitnesses to some of God's greatest signs and wonders ever seen. Think about it. They saw it with their own eyes. Irrefutable. That was God. That was nuts. And he saved and delivered uh, fantastic experiences. Uh, you've got all those Egyptian plagues. You've got uh, seas and rivers dividing so that you can walk through. Water out of rocks. Swirling pillars of fire, fire at night, telling you which way to go. Thousands of disobedient Israelites swallowed up in an earthquake. Don't want to disobey God. <laughs> Walls of fortress cities come tumbling down. They saw it. But in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we read, But there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done in Israel. And in verses 11 and 13, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, other lords, other gods. And they abandoned the Lord, 
the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, who weren't supposed to be around them. They were supposed to eradicate them. And they bowed down to them. And they provided, they provoked the Lord to anger. The nation of Israel was originally called by God to be in Exodus chapter 19, 6, a kingdom of priests to show the way to God. That's what a priest does, the go-between between God and man, and a holy nation. And by the end of the book of Judges, that glorious beginning and calling completely disappears, and they become like all the other nations around them. Even worse, as we get into this, they take on a resemblance that can be compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. What? Yes. Go to um, Genesis chapter 19, which is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and compare it to Judges chapter 19. It's the same thing. Even some of the same lines are repeated. And so we have to ask ourselves today, church, is there any holy difference between today's church and today's culture? Is there any difference? Third thing, what's the book really about? Because there's a lot of horror in here. By the end of the book, the people have had it. <laughs> They've had it with all these God-provided judges. And they're looking for a human king, someone who's going to be able to finally deliver them from enemies, from oppression to protect them, uh, even, even save them from sin and corruption, someone who's going to bring rest. We all just want peace. We all just want rest. Someone who will establish the inheritance that God promised them in the land forever. But that's not the answer. That's not even the answer. The judges in this book, the, the kings who are going to come after these judges, only cause more frustration. And in our hearts, at least in mine, I'm sure in yours, we've always looked forward to the coming of a, of a king of kings, right? We look for a king who does not do what is right in his own eyes but who says, as Jesus did in John 6, 38 to 40, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm not going to do what's right in my own eyes. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I'm going to be there. I'm going there. How about you? In your small group study guide, and even in your small groups, um, or if you do it on your own, that's great. You're going to get a background to all of this. It's in the first pages, and then you get to study chapter 1, which we're kind of, I'm giving you a heads up on it today, and we're going to go through Judges chapters 1, 2, and the first six verses of chapter 3. And in this first section of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, we're given a heads up. It's kind of a, a summary. This is where Israel's at now. 
And then you get into the judges later in chapter 3. We're given this heads up to the condition of Israel following the death of Joshua, and we're set up for all these coming judges. So to get us into the book, let's take a look at chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there now. I'll have most of the passages I'll be reading on the screen. But we see Israel's relative failure to expel all the inhabitants of the land like God asked them to. And then in chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 6, the reason and the consequence, the reason for and the consequences of that failure. Okay, chapter 1, relative success. Why only relative success? Because the command of the Lord, you can read it for yourself, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in the first five verses, was never fulfilled. God said, here's what I want you to do. Here's the scope of what I want you to do. Please do this. Not please. Do this. It was a command. And they, well, we'll see. And of all the tribes and what they did and did not do listed in chapter 1, all these relative successes, none of them are described with the kind of detail of one tribe. And it's the tribe of Judah. From verse 2 through verse 20 of chapter 1, it's all about Judah. So why put the emphasis on Judah? Why is that tribe so important to the grand scheme of God and the story of the Bible from the get-go of chapter 1? Well, for one thing, out of Judah comes a particular king. Anybody know? It's the, it's act, he's actually the second king of Israel, and his name begins with a D. David, they're very good. Yeah, so you guys are with me. And, 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 and the promise of an ultimate ruler from David's line, that comes out of Judah, it's in Genesis uh, 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And out of Judah comes the king of kings, that one that the world and you and I are looking for. Hebrews 7, 14, for it is evident that our Lord, speaking of Jesus Christ, was descended from Judah. So Judah gets the headlines in chapter 1, but they're not the kind of headlines you'd want. It's not, a good, it's not good news, not good news at all. I said Judah had relative success, starting in verse 19 of chapter 1. And the Lord was with Judah. Oh, that's cool, right? That's great. Yes, the Lord is with us. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. They had technology that we don't have, and they were so far superior, and we're not going to go fight them. It was even worse for the other tribes. Example, Benjamin. In Judges 1.21, but the people of Benjamin, they they didn't even bother. (laughs) They did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, which is going to be the capital, which is the city of peace. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The relative success of Judah is contrasted with the total failure of Benjamin to drive out the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to see later as we're going through this book that not driving out the inhabitants comes back to bite every one of these tribes, especially Benjamin. The book of Judges ends with that story. And as I've been preparing this message series, 
that last message will probably be, for me, the most difficult to deliver. It's horrific. It touches in areas that we don't like to voice or talk about much. But we'll get there when we get there. There is a statement repeated several times in this first chapter that we can't miss. And it's the main reasons why things are going to go south so quickly. It's in verse 21, verse 29, 30, 32, 33. And it's, so the Canaanites lived among them. See, that's the problem. God's children didn't completely fulfill what God the Father asked them to do. Parents, you know exactly what's going on here, don't you? I mean, don't you deal with this on a... Or, Maybe you did, some of you who who have got kids and you've raised them and they're gone. You deal with this all the time, what's going on in chapter 1. There was a very good reason why God gave this initial request. He knew the danger. He knew the temptations. He knew that they should not do this. You tell your kids, don't play out on the busy street. Why? Because you might get hit by a car. You know this as a parent. Don't hang around with those kinds of people. They're not your friends. And we'll see that this lack of trust in God's wisdom, that we would actually go against what the creator of the universe, who sees everything and controls everything, asks us to do, and we would actually say, no, that's probably not a good idea. This I know better attitude that I had with my parents. And then years later went, oh, I'm an idiot. (laughs) I'm still an idiot. And it results in catastrophe. So there was this relative success in chapter 1. So let's do the next chapter. Chapter 2, verse, chapter 3, verse 6. This next section, it's the reason why. I think we've got to get this because chapter 1 gives us the facts and we can look at it and analyze it and go, yeah, yeah, I can see how maybe that happened. But what you get in chapter 2 and verse 1 is heaven's explanation of the facts. Verse 1 to 3, we're introduced to the angel of the Lord and there are many in the church community over the last 2,000 years who believe this angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate form, who's going to be Jesus the Christ on earth, dying for our sins. But we're introduced to the angel of the Lord. And he says in verse 1, I brought you up out of Egypt. That's a fact. And I brought you into this land that I swore to give to your fathers hundreds of years ago. And I said to you, I will never break my covenant with you. Do you remember back when I just read verse 19, do you remember remember that? And we read that the Israelites, especially Judah, were unable. Do you remember that statement? They were unable to drive out the guys with the chariots made out of iron. That claim isn't exactly honest. In verse 2 of chapter 2 comes heaven's flat contradiction of that claim. Essentially, the Israelites had said, we can't do that. We're not going to go there. 
And God answers here, no, that's not the reason at all. You would not. It wasn't that you couldn't. You wouldn't. Verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. But what did they do? You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. You didn't do it. What is this that you have done? In other words, it's like you walk into your kid's room and you go, how did this get to be so messy? What did you do? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. This is what you want. And their gods shall be a snare to you. I can't. Or is it really, I won't? Don't we use I can't quite often as a justification for our I won't disobedience? Would, would you say? Are you being honest? Like, like with forgiveness. It's hard. I get it. I can't forgive this. <clears throat> I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her. But God commands me to fill in the blank, forgive. And I can go to all kinds of places, and we did this just a little while ago, a whole study on forgiveness. But in Matthew 18, 35, it's a big one. We can, in fact, determine to put aside our anger. We can, in fact, allow God to soften our hearts. We can, in fact, do this because of the knowledge of God's grace towards us that He forgave us while we were still sinners. When we say we can't, we mean we won't. We mean that we want to hang on to our anger, we want to hang on to our bitterness and our right to get even. We do it under the excuse of being unable. I just can't. How about difficult truth-telling? This might even be harder. I just can't tell that person the truth. I I just can't do it. It would destroy them (laughs) or it would destroy me depending on what it is you have to share. And what does God tell us to do? Ephesians 4, 15 and verse 25, in case you missed it the first time, speak the truth in love. Often our excuse for not telling the truth is cowardice. It's fear. Or, or maybe it's pride. And we'd say, I can't. And what we really mean is, if I tell the truth, they may not like me anymore. (laughs) Or if I told the truth, I would be humiliated for them to know that about me and for other people to find that out about me. I won't risk that cost. I would rather disobey God. That's what you're saying. How about temptation? I can't resist doing this thing, whatever it is. I know it's wrong. I get, I get it. You don't even have to, you don't, don't preach at me, Pete. I know it's wrong. I just can't resist it. And then we have to be really careful here as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because sin has this addictive power 
we still live in a sinful flesh. And it is true that we may not be able through our own sheer power and, and willpower to stop doing that something all by ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. But as followers of Jesus Christ, don't we have a helper, capital H? Don't we have a helper? The third person of the Godhead, who God calls His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we can confess our sin. We can humble ourselves. We can cry out to God for mercy and for transformation. We can become accountable to other Christians who can hold us accountable to this thing. God always provides a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no sinful action is inevitable. I'm not gonna, I don't buy it. Sorry. You probably don't want to come to me for counseling now. No sinful action is inevitable. No sin sin sinful temptation is irresistible. Not for a follower of Jesus Christ. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. We can have the victory in Christ Jesus. It's much more likely that you and I are simply, simply rather keeping on sinning in that way and excuse it away with our faulty inability reasoning. So we learn in Judges and elsewhere in Scripture that God sees this failure to obey what He says so clearly, so clearly what He's asked us to do, so clearly what He's asked us to be as a failure to remember. That's why when you go through so many Old Testament Scriptures, it doesn't matter what book, there's always these lines from God or the prophet that says, do you remember when? Do you remember when? I mean, there's so many of those, right? And it seems repetitive. It's like, okay, yeah, of course I remember when. No, no, this is the problem. You don't remember. God is the God who rescues. Look at what he says in Judges chapter 2, 1. I just read it. I brought you up out of Egypt. That's like the grandest story in Scripture. Hollywood does that one. It's that big. God is the one who remains faithful. I will never break my covenant with you. And to this day, I believe that the nation of Israel is one day going to come back to Jesus Christ as Savior. God's still got His hand on His people. Remember? The root of Israel and the root of your and my disobedience from day to day is essentially failing to remember who God is and what He has already done. Over and over, He's bailed me out. How about you? And the reverse is true. As long as I remember who He is and live accordingly and serve Him wholeheartedly in the face of anything, I receive this crazy joy, this, this indescribable peace and contentment. In, in chapter 2, verse 16 through 19, we're told why the Lord raises up all these judges, why He's doing this, and what they do for Israel. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them, and by the way, those who plundered them are plundering them because God allows them to because Israel's sinning. 
Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. Yeah, that's in the Bible. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandment of the Lord, and they did not do so. The Bible speaks here of human saviors, and we're going to get a whole bunch of them starting next week, one after another. And they deliver God's children. And then it's so predictable, I guess, for you and I as humans. We, we see these human saviors elevated by the people and put up on a pedestal. They're made into heroes. They're worshipped. They're, they're adored. It's, it's like what humans have always done and we are doing today. We've got our heroes. We got the people we make statues of. Why do we do that? What is that all about? We elevate the powerful. We elevate the gifted. And what we're going to find in Judges is God elevates the weak. And He gifts them to accomplish His will. In a mere two verses later, after the verse I just read, in verse 18, the same verb, saved, is used to who it really belongs to. It's, I think it's so cool how Judges does this. In verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up Judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them, even though they had put themselves in that spot. It is the Lord who raises up judges. It is the Lord who empowers them by His Holy Spirit. He's the agent. He's the power. He's the will. He is the force that saves. The judge is simply a tool in the hands of an awesome God. God alone is the true and the better judge. So we're going to see these series of broken saviors. We're going to see them come. We're going to see them conquer. And for many of them, we're going to see them fall, flat on their face, full of pride. We're going to see them take what God has gifted them with and provided for them and handle that gift like it's theirs like they deserve it, like they're all that. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers. <laughs> Generations don't get better, usually. It's a downward spiral. How sad. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. That is a self-description of our 21st century. This is where you and I live. And one of the beauties of Judges is the subtlety of the message. In verse 19, we see that Israel decided to serve another God. It doesn't say that they totally swapped the true God for an alternative, but that they were going after other gods. You see, it's possible, and I think it's actually normal for we humans to worship many gods all at the same time, and we think that's okay. It's convenient. 
Israel's spiritual life is way more complex than a simple decision to stop worshiping Yahweh, the Lord, and start worshiping a different God. That's not exactly what happened. In fact, what the Israelites did was to continue to worship the Lord along with other idols. So when we get to Judges chapter 17, and we're going to get there one day, we're going to find this Israelite woman, and it's a, it's a big story, so I'm just going to, just one verse I want to focus on in verse 3. And she says, uh, she, she gives her valuables, her silver uh, coin to her son, and she says this. Listen, this is an Israelite woman. I solemnly consecrate my, my silver to the Lord. Awesome, right? Giving back to God. For my son to make a carved image and cast an idol. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> what? I, I, you see, a, a pagan worldview, which is most of our world today, is that there are many gods. There's gods of agriculture, there's gods of business, there's gods of love, there's gods of war, there's gods of music. And each has a particular area of influence, but none demands lordship over every single area of your life. So with that view, everyone had his or her own god or gods. And you choose them and you discard them as needed. As, you know, hey, crops are coming, I better go to that god. Need rain, need the rain god. It was a mix and match religion. Does this sound, sound familiar? It was the kind of religion where the worshiper is sovereign. Because we humans like that. Because we, Adam and Eve, eat this and you will be gods. Little g. They chose where to worship. They chose what to worship. They chose how to worship. The worshipers are in charge. Paganism can accept the existence of the Lord God. There's a lot of people in this world today who, who, who believe in Jesus, but they're not followers of Jesus. The Lord just can't be the exclusive sovereign. He can be one of many gods. He can even be the uh, first among equals because they were always fighting the top gods. But he can't claim that he is the one true God, that his worshipers must give him absolute lordship over every single area of their life. The promised land was given. Why? So that everybody would be happy. No. The promised land was given in order that it be a land for exclusive worship of the Lord alone. Do you remember when Moses went before Pharaoh and he said, let my people go? And Pharaoh said, why? And what did Moses say? So that they can go worship God. That's what it's about. Why are you here today? Oh, there's people here I like. Well, good. I'm, I'm really happy about that. I'm here today because this is bigger than me on my own worshiping God throughout the week. And God deserves it. I don't... I, I like you all, and you're my friends. But I'm here to worship God. Maybe it's novel. I don't know. Instead, what is happening in the land of Israel, it's a land where they worship the Lord, 
plus other lords. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Why would God react this way? Why does he allow foreign nations to remain in the land of Israel? Why doesn't he just wipe them all out? Now, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan under Joshua. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. Wow. To teach war to those who had not known it before. And then he lists all the nations that had been left in the land. It's like crazy. Like they, never, they did not clean house at all. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and all the other ites. There's tons of ites. And their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. We need a king. We need an ultimate unifying ruler on this planet. Someone to bring us peace and security, someone who's going to make everything right. And people are looking for a human savior. It's the cry of our society today. And in the meantime, until that ruler shows up, Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes today. People think everything is okay. I can do this. I can be this. I can say this. And I can do it with immunity to the consequences. It's the perfect setup for Antichrist. And we know he will fall because we've all read the last book, right? We've read the last chapter. And we know God will, will win. But in the meantime, can it get worse? Well, in fact, yes. And it's going to get worse for Israel. We're going to come back to chapter 3 next week. Rise with me. And let's give this worship to the only one worthy of our worship, our focus, our attention. Let's do it unified with our voices, and let's pray first. Heavenly Father, our hearts are burdened when we read passages like Judges, but they're strengthened, Lord, as we see your faithfulness, not only to Israel, but to we, your children, who have placed our faith in your Son and our Savior. We look to you as the author and finisher of her faith, and we want to be faithful, found faithful as we walk out these doors and we minister and share the good news of your salvation with those we meet and interact with today. May we live it, not just say it, and do it by your grace and power. You give us all things through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.